welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, we are employing all the capabilities of uh, the worldwide interweb and stellar uh, technology today. I'm your host, Nate Larkin, slightly hoarse, but happy, joining you from Middle Tennessee. Aaron, our co-host from the West Coast, uh, is running from the authorities, I think. I don't know what has driven him into the woods, but he's, he is far from civilization, somewhere in uh, Northern California. Is it true you're hunting Bigfoot up there, Aaron? Well, that was supposed to be in strictest confidence, but <laughs> I will say that that might be true. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so he's, he's joining us by, by phone. Uh, I am standing, I am standing right now on the banks of the Sacramento river. Are you really? It's, it's lovely. It sounds, it sounds lovely. Uh, also here in middle Tennessee, but at a different address is, uh, my Silas and a longtime Samson guy familiar to Many of our listeners here in the Pirate Monk Podcast, David Hampton's with us. Hey, David. Hey, Nate. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Michael. And, hey. Uh, <laughs> Man, you that ruined the surprise right there, David. I don't know. Um, All right, go ahead and introduce the secret guest. I will. I will. David will be the guest, the featured guest in our podcast. We'll get to a good conversation with him later in the show about his great new book. But in the meantime, dialing in from Colorado is another friend of the Pirate Monk Podcast, None other than uh, Michael Cusick, uh, author of the book that many of you have read, Surfing for God, and a good friend. Hey, Michael, how are you? I am good, but am I the secret guest? I thought it was Jimmy Hoffa or Elvis or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jimmy man. Hoffa was a no-show again. <laughs> so it's you. Yeah. Well, uh, you're the frosting on this cake, Michael. Um, well, it's, my, it's my very first appearance as a secret guest, so I'm going to add this to my my media resume. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I got to tell you, Michael, I was thinking about you yesterday as I was uh, listening to um, uh, recordings of a webinar that was put together by some associates of uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking specifically about shame and what, what snagged my attention was uh, a title that says, How Shame Can Mimic Trauma. And I thought, man, if there's somebody who can unzip this for me, it's got to be Michael Cusick. Um, uh, nope, so I, I don't have anything to say about it. Sorry. I, uh... <laughs> you got nothing, huh? Yeah. Oh, anyway, it was just fascinating how, how this, you know, this, this shame response can actually shut us down uh, physically, shut the body down in, in the same way that trauma does, I suppose, because it's triggering some kind of a traumatic response. Anyway, we went really deep, real heavy, real early, which is not something we do here on the Pirate Monk podcast. Instead, we talk about the weather and our kids. Uh, speaking of which, Aaron, uh, you, you've got your daughter with you. Your sweet Abby is with you. And uh, you had this father-daughter date all planned. And, uh, and there you are on the, on the banks of the Sacramento River in a beautiful <laughs> setting. But you had an adventure on the way there. Tell us about it. Oh, no. The way here was fantastic. Listened to an audio book for six hours and arrived at a location that uh, was fantastic. And the next day we got up and I worked and she did homeschool. And then we said, let's go to Chico, California, where I've never been uh, for lunch. And, uh, and then we arrived in there and uh, wrecked my car in a car accident. It is now totaled. So we Ubered back to the house after having the what was left of my car towed to an auto body shop. And here we have been for a couple days. And I think tomorrow I have secured a ride to Sacramento where I might buy another car if the insurance check comes through in time. Holy. Otherwise, Jen, otherwise Jenny will have to drive to Sacramento and pick us up. Wow. So yeah. That's the thumbnail. Uh, but uh, but uh, neither one of you was injured in the accident? No. Uh, actually, the, the worst part for Abby was uh, the embarrassment of all the ambulances and uh, fire trucks that were coming and people staring at us. Oh, okay. On the side of the road. 
Yeah, that can be absolutely so, mortifying for an 11 or 12 year old girl. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, we are okay. And uh, the other lady that uh, hit us was okay, which she was uh, quite elderly. So I was pretty worried at the beginning because she was really shaken up. So I was really glad that she was okay. So, wow. so Abby has had her first car accident experience. Very good. Very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what else to say about it, uh, but that's what's happening in our neck of the woods. Okay. Michael, it's been a couple of months since you and I were together uh, out there in Colorado, and I had such a terrific time there uh, at the Surfing for God intensive weekend. Talked about it some here on the podcast. Uh what's uh, transpired in your world since then? Well, man, I, I hit the ground uh, running after that. I came back and I've been working on a writing project, which is uh, an ebook similar to your work on accountability that's going to be distributed worldwide by Our Daily Bread out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm oh, really excited nice. about that. Yeah, because it's going to involve some of the uh, self-regulation skills around how to deal with our trauma responses, including shame. So I've been putting a lot of time into that and then gearing up for our next weekend, which is in three and a half weeks. And we have 27 men signed up out of the 30. So only three spots left. Wow. And uh, it's just been a blessing to see men kind of jump in uh, wholehearted because the word's getting out. Holy smokes. And yeah, you have, I, you know, I cannot think of a better gift that a man can give himself. And uh, if he's married, it's actually a gift that he can give his wife and his family to uh, disconnect from daily life for a weekend uh, and invest uh, what in the long run will turn out to be a small percentage of probably what his addiction is costing him uh, in opportunity, if not in outright expense, and uh, put himself uh, just kind of launch, uh, uh, relinquish control for a weekend uh, and allow skilled and loving men to take you places that it's frightening to go by yourself. And uh, see. So this, this is. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, want, I want to get to the nitty gritty here because there's a couple things uh, that I would want to ask. Yeah. This is four, four days, right? Three days, yes. four days? Yeah, it goes from a Thursday night at 5 o'clock to Sunday at noon. So it's three full nights. We call it uh, 66 Hours to Breakthrough. It's not the name of the program, but that's really what happens. And uh, it's a combination of time in small groups with licensed therapists and then a lot of large group experiential activities. Uh, But go ahead and, yeah, what are your questions for the nitty-gritty? Well, well, so uh, if... If a guy says, well, that sounds good, but he's only been to like some church men's retreat, and then he sees the price tag on this and says like, geez, I've never seen a a men's retreat that costs that much, explain to them what the difference is and why this is really an investment, like Nate said. Yeah, Aaron, great question. And let me tell you, my friend, you come (laughs) to Colorado, I give you a special deal. (laughs) (laughs) i i'm serious aaron i want i want you to come and uh be a part of it and to witness it as one of our uh support staff kind of like what nate did i would love to meet you face to face and uh that's truly an offer for september or anytime after that but you're right it's it's often called a retreat but it's it's really not a retreat at all it's a therapeutic weekend And for men who have not done either individual or group therapy, this combines into 66 hours uh, small group therapy, but also individual work supervised by a therapist that men do face-to-face. And so it's like a retreat uh, on steroids uh, at, at warp speed, but not in a way that leaves you all hyped up emotionally and then kind of having that kumbaya camp experience and then you're headed home, but in a way where it really opens up your heart and um, allows healing to occur on the weekend, but also afterwards so that not only will men have a whole new chance to live life free, but there's a whole new way that they can actually live life. Well said. Well, well said. Yeah. And uh, as these intensive weekends, uh, 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 as these we- uh, intensives go, yours is actually uh, 
I hate to harp on the price here. I sound like a salesman and lest anybody wonder, I get absolutely no percentage from this. Um, yours is actually priced uh, mid to low, uh, toward the middle or, or the low end of the, of the range for similar weekends. So, yeah, can I can I make a comment on that and make yeah. a uh, a special offer for your listeners? Just because I I really love and believe in Samson Society, the the price for the weekend is one thousand seven hundred fifty dollars. Um, and for anybody in Samson who's listening to this podcast, for the three spaces remaining for our weekend coming up May seventeenth to the twentieth, we will offer the early bird price, which has come and gone, but that's fourteen ninety nine. That's oh, nice. 251 bucks off, and for a guy coming in, that might be the better part of a flight. Yeah. So uh, we want to fill these three spots and sell out and lock it in, and then we've got one in September. But, yeah, for anybody listening, I'd like to offer that. Okay. Fantastic. Right. I'll, make one, I'll make one more recommendation here, Nate, and this is, this is all very time-sensitive. But if, if somebody that's listening really wants this for another guy and has that uh, – gift of making money, which is not a gift I have, uh, and and wants to like say, hey, if, if there is a guy that wants to sign up for this but can't afford it but really needs it, I would sponsor that guy. Send us, send us an email and we will try to make that happen. Oh, that's a great idea, Aaron. Yeah. So yeah, if you would like to be a sponsor of another man, if that's one way that you want to pay forward, just shoot us an email at uh, Sam at Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail .com. I'll monitor uh, the the inbox there and forward anything that comes in immediately to Michael. Well, brother, uh, blessings on you on the weekend, and uh, give uh, how many of the staff that I met on my. Uh, weekend with you are going to be present at this intensive, Michael? Almost all of them. So Kendall, who you uh, co-led a group with, who's in yeah. Atlanta, Georgia, and a, a sex addiction therapist there, he will be there. Uh, we have two new guys this time that are coming just to experience it. We really like to open it up to people that are not necessarily therapists, but uh, yeah. folks that are you know, doing this ministry around the country. And that's part of how we're growing. But it was so cool to have you there, Nate, because we haven't been able to spend a lot of time together face to face. But um, I, I appreciated how you came and gave and served, but how you were also open to uh, allowing the weekend to be a healing agent in your life. And just, you, we had a, a conversation recently where you said, I, I can think of a lot of things to blow 1500 bucks on. And I've been thinking <laughs> about that comment. Yeah. You know, I'm always, my new addiction is uh, wristwatches or, you know, a new mountain bike. And I'm always fantasizing about what, what do I have to do to get that, to be able to buy that watch or that bike or something. Yeah. And, and how often, we don't invest money on ourselves the way that we would do it for some kind of item or toy. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. And thank you for Samson being such a, a support for what we're doing. Hey, Hey, and I appreciate it. Hey, go ahead, Aaron. Go ahead. Well, I was uh, just going to ask before you left, when is that ebook supposed to be coming out? Cause I'm curious about that. Yeah. 2023 actually. <laughs> Yeah, if you get it yeah. done in time. Yeah, that feels <laughs> like my week. I, uh, I'm, I'm going to hand it in May 14th, uh, uh, right before the weekend. And uh, then they're going to do their editing thing. And because it's an ebook, I don't think it'll take a lot of turn, time to turn around. So possibly uh, early summer, mid-summer. Fantastic. All right. We'll touch base with you again after that book comes out. Those are some right. Thank you, valuable practical skills you're going to be conveying. All right. Thanks, Michael. We'll talk to you later, brother. All right. Take care. All right. Okay. Uh, so what's, uh, what's happening with, with you, Nate? With me? Have you crashed any cars or uh, spent any time with your daughter? <laughs> I have spent time with my daughter. Uh, you know, we're gearing up for this uh, father-daughter trip the epic trip to Ireland and England. Uh, I've been bu bugging her the last couple of weeks to uh, renew her passport. And then I happened, to look at, I happened to look at mine on Sunday and discovered that mine has expired as well. So, so I've been scrambling at this point. Uh, I've got to pony up the extra money for ex expedited handling to make sure that we get the, that travel authorization in time for the trip. Been doing that. Also made a weekend trip uh, back to 
uh, my mother's hometown of Newcastle, Pennsylvania, where I've got a couple of sisters who live there, one of whom, younger than me, was diagnosed a year ago with early onset Alzheimer's, which, as it turns out, progresses much more rapidly than uh, the, 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 the form of Alzheimer's that usually afflicts the elderly. And uh, so one of my nieces contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, if you want to visit mom, you should come quickly. She's already at stage six, and there are seven stages to the disease. Wow. Uh, uh, so I went up, had a, a sweet time with my sister, uh, who was uh, you know, already, you know, she's, all, she's a bright woman, uh, kind, the sweetest, I think, out of uh, all of us in the family. Uh, already, you know, there are, you know, she, she gets disoriented. She can't do numbers anymore. She can't write her name anymore. Uh, she has, uh, some, uh, delusions and, um, finds it hard to follow the thread of conversation, but we were able, uh, when we tapped into early memories of childhood, uh, we were able to uh, reminisce in a way that was healing for me. And I think for her, I just enjoyed a couple sweet days with my sister. Um, Great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, that is a hard thing to go through. I'm, I know uh, for those that have gone through it with loved ones, I know we did it with my grandmother and that's a, that is a hard, hard thing to go through. Yeah. Right. So, well, on that note, should we take a break and uh, gather our thoughts and emotions? I think that's a good come idea. Back. Yeah, we'll come back. With Mr. David Hampton. We will. So we'll be back in just a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. In the Pirate Monk podcast. This is actually the second time that I have sat down with David today. A couple hours ago, we were nose to nose at a local coffee shop or our weekly meeting, which uh, has become, and anybody who has a Silas knows this feeling. This becomes kind of the pivot, yeah. the pivot for the week. This is a very important time for me to sit down and, um, you know, and just have an so, so unfiltered David. conversation. David, what, what kind of stuff did Nate talk about this morning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I sell that information, actually. I'm like, <laughs> you'd like to contribute, I'll tell you all his, uh, all his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all you, all you need is a PayPal account and uh, uh, Venmo, <laughs> log then, in information. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you a transcript. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mr. Hampton, it's been a little while since we've had you on. What's been happening in your life since the last we hung? Wow, that's a good question. I am um, uh, continuing to build my uh, recovery work uh, practice. I'm in private practice now in uh, Brentwood, Tennessee, and uh, I'm continuing to build that um, uh, that group, and um, people are, are coming in um with a lot of needs and a lot of um uh, a lot of pain and uh so a um it's a very different job than a church uh staff position which is what i held for about 20 years prior to this and uh this is my second full year in practice and um, i'm in a group of about seven other therapists and we're all individual practitioners but uh also a part of 
the Tennessee Neurofeedback Clinic, and uh, which is doing some remarkable things. And uh, one of the interesting things, you know, just having listened to Michael, um, I was actually listening to the Vanderkalk uh, podcast literally on my way in this morning uh, that he did with Krista Tippett on mm. NPR and uh, just talking about that same uh, thing about shame and the body keeping score and uh, all of that so um, which uh, is a, is all part of what I'm working with people in now uh, as well so um, and then I happened to uh, write a book <laughs> uh, that came out at the end of March and uh, is available on Amazon, but also in Barnes and Noble and some major retailers. Um, and uh, that uh, is published by Morgan James, and it's called After the Miracle. And um, I am speaking now about that, um, going out and doing some different things where the uh, the book is concerned, but talking to people about the tensions of sobriety um, and what we uh, sometimes don't talk about in our, in our zeal for sobriety and to see our loved ones get sober, we forget that there are some real tensions that come with that. And then um, on a side note, uh, I'm going, going to be a grandfather in October. So my daughter expecting. Wow. And uh, she and her husband are excited. He will uh, be deployed, actually, uh, while she's probably giving birth, <laughs> which is not exciting. Uh, but that is uh, that is my big news. So I'm going to be a uh, wow. grandpa. So. And is it something... Yeah, that, that kind of overshadows other stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you, know well, you know, my career well, is going on, or the book is coming out, but... Uh -huh. The big news is I get to be a grandfather. Yeah, exactly. that's fantastic. So I, before we talk about the book, can I, I wanted to ask, you really in the last year, I mean, here you've got this new career up and going. You've been a, a worship pastor for 20 years. You have, in the last year, also sold the house that you shared with your wife who passed away yes. and moved into the city. And right. kind of like a whole new life for you. What What is yeah. that? How has that experience been? Well, you know, I tend to, um, you know, I'm the guy that if I need to change my socks, I change the whole outfit. You know, so, <laughs> if I step in a puddle, I go home and I change clothes. I mean, that's just what I do. Uh, no, I, it is really, yeah, it's like there's nothing in my life that I recognize from the outside right now in a, in a good way, uh, but also a strange way because I am in a different profession. I, um, I sold my house that we lived in for 25 years that my wife and I built um, actually. And after she passed away, it will be, uh, it will be five years on May 6th. And, um, after she passed away, uh, I lived there for a while and realized that after my daughter moved out, got married and, um, that I did not need to live in a house in the suburbs of Franklin, Tennessee alone. And, uh, I didn't enjoy it anymore and it held some great memories, but it also held some hard ones. And, um, so I uh, found a place in a really cool part of Nashville that um, when I first moved to Nashville, if you had told me I would be walking my dog in Melrose uh, at 1030 at night, I would have asked you which secret service agents had been assigned to protect me. Yeah. Um, but this is an up and coming part of town that uh, a lot of new development and some great cool condos and apartments. And so I've got this, this nice uh, little city place and, uh, and I joined the Episcopal church uh, last month and uh, I am uh, officially an Episcopalian now, uh, oh. which uh, I'm excited about. I love my new uh, faith community that meets at Vanderbilt campus uh, you used to, you uh, in used one to of the chapels there. And, um, it's, uh, it's a very recovery based congregation. There are a lot of people with, a what was that? Oh, I just want to say you used to be a Christian and now you're Episcopalian. That's okay. Go I'm ahead. sorry. I lost some, I lost some contact with somebody. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me there? Well, I missed what you said, Nick. My uh, internet. Went. I was just insulting you. That's all. I just said you oh. used to be a Christian, and now you're an Episcopalian. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's so, okay. sort of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I've changed 
pretty much everything that uh, was a part of my life for 20 some years. And uh, it actually feels like I uh, moved to another uh, city and took on somebody else's identity. Uh, so it's fun. It's good. It's a fresh start and I'm excited about the things I'm getting to do and making a lot of new friends and, um, new lifestyle. And, uh, so it's a, it's a great, great shift. Yeah. So, so from a therapist perspective and, and I'm of course assuming the best for you, but what is the difference when you meet someone who's changing their life to escape versus changing their life because it needs to enter a new phase? How does someone know the difference between those two? Well, I think that um, it has to do with what is driving the change where it comes down to um, what you believe the change is going to accomplish. Um, If I thought that geography and um, my church family and my uh, whatever was going to uh, was at the root of my problem uh, with me, then I think that would probably be unhealthy. But because I feel like I'm in a good place emotionally and personally, and I want to see myself branch into some new areas and experience some new things, uh, then I think that's a much different um, approach to change. Those of us that, you know, have made uh, changes in geography and thought that that would change our uh, our inner turmoil uh, soon realize that's not true. And I think now that I'm able to uh, look at it from a standpoint of these are some new things I want to experience and some new healthy things that I want to uh, be a part of, um, then that's a little different than escaping. Right. One One's pressing into life and the other's trying to retreat. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, I remember, David, that we talked about the concept of this book uh, a couple of years ago here on the podcast. Right. As you were uh, really felt to me at the time as though uh, God was giving you kind of some words, a, a way to describe a common experience that wasn't being talked about that much within the recovery community. Uh, because we don't want to discourage anybody from entering recovery. And so there's a temptation to just tell the good stories and, uh, you know, let's sell the benefits of recovery. And of course, uh, they are they are legion, right? Uh, but there are challenges that come with recovery. That if we're not uh, prepared for them, and if those around us are not prepared for them, can uh, I think uh, lead to some disappointment and maybe in some cases even despair? Mm-hmm. Is that was that kind of behind your writing after the miracle? It is um, very much. And one of the things that as I, as I began to work with people individually, one of the things that I realized uh, and, and in my own life, in my own story was that uh, if we get the addict well and can bring them back home to play nicely with the rest of us, then we've accomplished our, our goal. Mm -hmm. And that rarely happens. (laughs) Yeah. um, you know, the, is the problem um, because the patient is the family and the family is the patient. And, um, and what, what is happening often is that the addict is just the whistleblower uh, mm-hmm. in the family, not um, the person that just has the problem, but there's an awful lot going on in family systems uh, that uh, the addict is just um, beginning to point the finger at or identify. And, um, and so families think they want to get back to normal, but normal is not going to happen again if this person gets sober because this person's going to come home and have opinions and feelings and um, want to insert themselves in their own lives, want to, um, want to uh, be less managed. They don't need to be managed so mm-hmm. much. And um, if everyone else's roles have stayed the same and they're anticipating getting to play those roles with that person, it's going to be a very tense um, relational time. Spouses um, that need to be needed have a terrible adjustment once they get a sober spouse home Yeah, uh, that doesn't 
need to be managed or, or nor enabled nor whatever. And, um, and so after the miracle, you know, we, it's sort of the, the nutshell is, you know, when you finally get what you pray for, um, be careful. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there's some things attached to that, that there's some price tags that come with it. And, uh, and this person, sometimes marriages don't all make the trip, you know? And, um, and so I began to experience that with my clients and realized that the expectations of sobriety, uh, in the family and what the person coming home actually wanted, uh, their life to look like were very different, uh, And, uh, and so in, in the book, I, I used, uh, some examples, uh, in the Bible of Christ and his miracles and what those things, um, may demonstrate and, uh, and ways to think about them. Yeah. Give us one example from the new Testament. Uh, did you say, here's an example or give us an example? Give us an example. David. Okay. Uh, here's an example. Uh, uh, the, the man who's uh, paralyzed on the mat and his friends uh, drag him in and they uh, go up to, to the roof of this, of this uh, poor guy's house who's, you know, uh, having home church or whatever they are. And, uh, and they cut a hole and lure this man down to see Jesus. You know, here's this paralyzed man who's borrowed his friend's faith to get there. And, uh, and, uh, Jesus tells him, first of all, your sins are forgiven. But secondly, he tells him, you know, take up your bed and walk. And everybody in town watches this guy get up off his mat and, uh, roll it up and walk down the street. And my imagination goes a little wild because I think at that point, um, here is a guy that five minutes ago, uh, did not have any of the responsibilities that he suddenly has now as a quote, well, man. Mm-hmm. Um, he is suddenly going to have to find a vocation. He's suddenly going to have to um, go home and address uh, the fact that his family doesn't need to care for him in the way that they have. His his illness may have been the thing that uh, the family was built around, and now mm-hmm. they don't need to do that, and they have to find a way to relate to him differently. And he's got new expectations, and there are new expectations of him because the whole town pretty much sees him get up and walk out. So there's not going to be any more begging at the gate. There's not going to be any more um, uh holding on to the excuses of my illness. Mm. And so um, I can't hide behind my illness anymore. I'm going to have to learn how to do life as a healthy person. And uh, I think that's a lot of what happens in sobriety. Um, You know, we, we have uh, the guy at the pool of Bethesda, who's uh, we're told was there for 38 years. And uh, the, the, one of the first things Jesus asks him is, do you want to be well, which I always thought was kind of an ironic question, but you know, he didn't ask him, do you want to walk? He asked him if you want to be well. And I think that's a different question. Um, you know, uh, if you just want to walk, we're not going to maybe, um, make too much, uh, change here, but if you want to be well, there's a whole lot that's going to go with that. Mm. Um, and, uh, it's a similar question that my, uh, first sponsor asked me, you know, if you want to just stop drinking, I can't help you. But if you want to be sober and you understand that sobriety is a different way of believing, thinking, approaching life and treating people and expecting things, um, then I can help you. Wow. So, so let's, let's break down some of the practicals real quick for those that uh, are, are still trying to catch up with that huge thought. The, the man that was lowered through the roof changes in his life. He has to get a vocation. He has to learn a vocation and he's older. So he was an apprentice. Uh, his friends are used to having a guy that has no opinion because they just drag him wherever they're going. Now right. he might want to go for a weekend at the Sea of Galilee, and they don't want to. So they now have a person with opinions. Uh-huh. Mom has spent her whole life caring for this child who can't care for himself. So now she has to figure out her identity beyond a caretaker. What are some What are some other just practical things that obviously came up in this guy's life? Yeah, I mean those are those are exactly the things. I think things like um, just that his that he's entitled to an opinion that that he uh learns to embrace the fact that his opinion matters and that he doesn't have to you know uh live in any kind of a a shame based 
stigmatized life because in that in that culture you know my understanding is that people with disabilities were stigmatized often there's beliefs there were beliefs that maybe you know you were the product of the sins of your parents or any number of things and um and in our culture addiction is very stigmatized mm-hmm. uh, when we sit down and talk to somebody about an addiction, whether it's a, a substance use or a compulsive behavioral issue, uh, there is a stigma about that. And especially in the church, we are constantly telling the church, this is not a moral issue. It is not a sin issue. This is a completely different kind of um, animal than, than most of the things that you're um, dealing with on a daily basis. So we're not here to change this person's behavior. We're here to uh, find out why the pain, not why the substance or why the, why the compulsion. We want to know why the pain. And so I think in this guy's case, uh, like, you know, just to take the mat uh, analogy further, um, when you are used to being um, uh, cared for when you are used to being managed and you're used to being um, uh, having decisions made for you when you no longer uh, feel the need for people to do that uh, you can almost overcorrect <laughs> mm-hmm. you can almost be, you can almost be perceived as contentious uh, maybe you are contentious frankly you know I know when I first got sober I was told that I was contentious <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, but, uh, but the, but the thing that people, uh, have to understand is this is a person who's suddenly awake, um, who has a lot of options and, uh, that they didn't, that they didn't believe they had prior to that. So, so the, that's interesting because you're saying there's a journey a for him to find his voice that he might want to go to the Sea of Galilee, but he doesn't want to say it. So there's that part. But then that can go too far where he also hasn't had to find the middle ground of not just demanding his own way. Mm-hmm. And then the third complication is the response of others, which uh, an addict can meet with a lot of anger from the people around them when mm-hmm. they think this is like a great blessing and everybody else is in confusion and responds in a negative way to them having that voice. So what does an, what does an addict do when they think they're exercising this new freedom that they've been given through sobriety and they are met with uh, resistance and anger and bitterness from the people around them, maybe a spouse or a parent or friend? Right. Um, I think one of the things that we need to help um, – Uh, people coming into sobriety understand is that um, we have to be patient with the people around us because it is going to take our loved ones time to catch up with us. Um, There are trust issues. There are, um, uh, there are, you know, I mean, this isn't our first run it. We don't, we very rarely get sober on our first, our first run at it anyway. So, you know, about 15 or 20 attempts at sobriety later, uh, some of our families uh, and loved ones and spouses have uh, begun to doubt that we really um, are uh, are either serious about this or can pull this off or whatever their whatever their perspective is on that. And we have to be patient with them and understand that uh, the only thing we can do is daily demonstrate that we are doing this for ourselves and that we, um, by doing this for ourselves, are doing it uh, out of love for the people around us um, and that it is going to take them time to catch up. I'm, I mean, I tell this about my daughter with her permission. She was angry with me for about three years after I got sober. You know, she was a teenage uh, young woman when I got sober and it took her about three years to buy into the fact that I really uh, meant what I said. Um, and you know, the only thing I could do was uh, not drink and go to meetings and demonstrate my sobriety and let her know that I was as emotionally present as I could be in her life. And, um, and, and eventually she, uh, she believed me, Mm. but it took time. It wasn't, you know, we didn't all, uh, hug necks after my first AA meeting. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, 
<laughs> are there other reactions like being angry when a spouse wants to know exactly where you are and things like that and a person in recovery is like stop stop tracking me everywhere and they maybe need to that's part of the grace is saying you know for a period of time yes because I need often, to be, yeah because our 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 loved ones uh still believe that they can manage our um our outcomes um, you know, cause they have probably tried to manage your outcomes. I mean, how many, how many spouses have poured out all the booze? How many spouses have, you know, blocked somebody's internet or they've done whatever, uh, they thought they were being, uh, proactive when in fact, uh, you know, it just further creates the power struggle. But, um, but yeah, I think it's understandable that, um, that they they still want to believe they can they can they are helping us by questioning us or I just need to know this and um, all that and that's why I'm a big believer in family support um, groups Al-Anon um, ACA groups adult children alcoholics um, these kind of groups help give people a voice where maybe the addict isn't the person uh, to whom that all should be expressed yeah. so. Hey, uh, l- let me ask you about one issue that uh, you're familiar with because you and I talk every week. Um, I had the feeling when I got into sobriety that I had um, so um, I'd been so irresponsible toward my wife and family, and had and had been extended so much grace mm-hmm. that I had forfeited all right, really to, uh, yeah, I'd been willful for so long and self-centered for so long that I'd forfeited any right to self-care. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, um, or, or even to, even to have a desire for anything, mm-hmm. uh, that whatever my wife and family wanted, uh, my job was to give it to them really for the rest of rest of my life. And so there, what I think I developed was a bit of a martyr complex where uh, I could feel as though I, I'm also doing my own redemption here mm-hmm. um, I, by continually uh, uh, sacrificing, by denying my own opinions and desires, especially around sex, mm-hmm. uh, but other things as well. Um, I think in my, my own, I don't think that was healthy for me. I'm swinging back toward, yeah, you know, that kind of voluntary martyrdom leads to, at least in my case, resentment. Right. Yeah. Which we, uh, as addicts can't really afford, uh, right. you know, resentment feels the entitlement that justifies our behavior. Right. Uh, and so we, um, and, and we do believe at some point, I think at times, especially if we are dealing with a reluctant family, um, we're, we're dealing with something that, um, we think we're going to, we're going to earn that love back, or we're going to, we are going to love them through this ambivalence that they are experiencing toward us yeah. and prove that, uh, we're serious. We'll, we'll earn that love. We'll, get that parade we <laughs> thought we deserved. Yeah. Uh, and, and they probably aren't building a, building a float uh, for me to ride through the streets of my neighborhood, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a two way street though. So for the, for the spouse of an addict that might be listening. Uh, okay. Nate, you're talking about kind of a self-inflicted thing. Yeah where you finally, you know, you do your step one and admit this. And so now it feels like there's a whole lot of penance. Right. Like you need to be punished now. For yes. That's wrong. Yeah. And so having fun, having joy, those right. kinds of things almost feels like you're cheating. The yes. Process. Yes. Yes. But, but for the spouse, is it not more, I mean, it's got to be the hardest thing in the world, but is it not more helpful for them to be ushering in a lightness of life so that it feels like this is a better version of life? Look, now we're, now we're more connected. Now we have joy. How does a spouse 
even try to wrap their head around that instead of furthering the, yeah, why don't you be punished for a while? Why don't we lock you down a little bit more? Or is that not what a spouse should be thinking at all? I don't know. I'm, I have not been in that situation. Hmm. Well, you know, one thing I try not to do is tell spouses, um, well, or anybody, but, but spouses, especially partners, how to feel or how they should be feeling. Um, because they really are, um, they really are making a journey of their own and they are trying to catch up. Um, often, uh, you know, after sobriety, the, the person that's experiencing it is so, uh, ready to take on the world, um, 30 days in or whatever. And, <laughs> and, and like I said, the spouses, you know, catching up. And I think that there is a lot of residual, uh, anger and, you know, what do you mean you want to go, camping with your friends and where do you get off, you know, calling that your me time when you've had me time for about the last 15 years checked out on the couch or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And what, what about us? What about this? And I think as much as we can bring the spouses and the families along uh, in the process, the better it is for them to help understand what they're all going through because they're all, everybody's, everybody's suffering uniquely and experiencing things uniquely. Um, very, very few have I met that come in here all on the same page and are ready to, um, you know, just lock arms and go at it, uh, through life. Um, everybody's coming in with different resentments, different experiences. Um, and some people are just done. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, frankly, um, they're just done. And, um, so it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a it's a multifaceted thing. But wouldn't how do we uh, all of that being overwhelmingly true? Obviously, if somebody's coming in and and strangely they're so accustomed to their spouse or someone in their family being addicted that all of a sudden when they get sober, all the anger comes out that you're like, "Wait, things are on the upswing. Don't drag, don't be the anchor, but you have to let them have those feelings." Right. But in recovery, it seems like there's so much focus on the let's not screw this up. We got to hold on to it tightly that it seems like joy and really living life takes a far back seat. I mean, it's a stretch limo back seat mm-hmm. to the pursuit of just hanging on to sobriety. Mm-hmm. So how how can people be encouraged, uh, whether it's the addict? going through their punishing of themselves or a spouse feeling like, you know what, I want them to be punished, that both of them could say we're, we're still living and we have a window, we have a door that we can walk through into joy right now. What, how, yeah. do, how do people get there? They just have to take the long walk and hopefully find that. Well, I think one of the things is they're going to have to have help. They're going to have to have people that really do understand uh, addiction and recovery to help them understand that the door locked behind them when they embarked on sobriety together and their old normal, you know, people want to get back to normal. That is never going to happen again. Your old normal didn't work. Mm-hmm. And um, the only thing you can do now is create a new normal. And so helping them understand what is that new normal going to look like? Is it going to be a, a normal where we, you know, continue to throw the monkey crap at each other and um, really blame each other from now till whenever, or are we going to embark together on a blank canvas and really begin to create what this could look like as a, as a life together. Um, But it's going to be a mutual, it's going to be a mutual thing. It's a very hard thing for people uh, to, um, to just be told, go off and get sober and come home and, um, uh, and we'll move forward from here when the, the spouse believes it's a one sided, uh, that it's a one sided, uh, issue or problem. Um, this is a, this is a, this is a family thing or a group thing or a couple thing, a marriage thing. And so that door of, of normal, uh, the old normal locked behind you when you decided to get sober And the only thing you can do now is go forward and pursue joy together. But I think the spouse has to be brought along in the process. It's, it's not going to work well if they're um, alone in it. Yeah. 
I love your advice uh, to get help. And you have already, you've suggested some ways that couples can get help. Uh, uh, Those in recovery and their uh, friends, spouses, family members can get help. Uh, You've mentioned um, ACA, Mm -hmm. ACOA, Adult Child, uh, Children of Alcoholics. You've mentioned Al-Anon. Um, you're part of a a therapy group and there is a growing, uh, army of well-trained, empathetic and wise therapists and counselors Mm -hmm. inside the church and outside the church. You can help us navigate the waters of recovery. Um, and this, I love this. You, you, uh, you're, you're not a licensed therapist, David. Mm Mm-hmm. But you, uh, you are licensed as a – what's your certification there in the state of Tennessee? It's a certified professional recovery coach. Yeah, there you go. And I have a recovery coach myself that I talk – in addition to my time with you, I actually spend time with Robin Abatey. Uh, and I find it very, very helpful to have that um, outside voice. Most of the people you work with uh, come to your office? Right, yes. Yeah, uh, but not all of them? No. In fact, I do a lot of phone work with people. Um, I, um, I have clients in about four other states, actually, mm. and we have standing appointments just like they would if they came in at, you know, 3 o'clock on Wednesday. Um, 3 o'clock on Wednesday for them is that um, I will be talking to them over the phone for an hour. Mm-hmm. And we catch up and check in and work our strategies in the same way that we would if they came into my office. And I also do work with um, treatment centers and nonprofits. And so I, I may, if I have a client that's in treatment, uh, I may make a couple of trips out to see them while they're uh, in treatment if it's agreeable with their therapist there. Um, so it's a, a kind of a multifaceted way that I that I interact with the people I work with. Yeah, yeah. And this so, is where, so again, know, go ahead, Aaron. Well, I was going to say, we, we know you're great, but just like a person shouldn't go on a first date and decide to marry a person, <laughs> how can someone know if a group they join, I'm picturing some Al-Anon groups I've sent people to that ended up being not helpful to them, yeah. Just because of the general feel. How, what are some things a person should know as they go out to get help in a group or with a counselor that they can say, okay, this is good for me or this is bad for me? Yeah. Well, sometimes you have to, I tell people, if we're talking about groups, sometimes you have to just visit the groups. Um, it's a little bit like um, picking a church, you know, mm-hmm. you, Kind of, you know about it based on some things people have told you, but you kind of have to go try it on. And if you go in and it just doesn't, um, it doesn't fit, if it's a group that's focused on just, you know, uh, people bitching about their spouse, um, then that's not a good group for you. <laughs> it's, you know, you have to find a, a different group. And uh, asking around, it's, um, it, it takes some vulnerability because you have to reveal that you're going through some things and ask some friends and ask some people that you may know who are in recovery, what some good uh, resources are in your area. You know, you can get listings on the websites of every AA meeting or Al-Anon meeting in your area, but nobody knows if those are great ones. And I think sometimes you just have to visit and you just have to go around to those kind of things. As far as coaching and, and therapists and people like that, I think one of the things that is um, helpful is, um, again, asking uh, for recommendations and referral lists from people that um, churches often keep a list of referrals. Uh, Doesn't mean that everybody on it is uh, a good fit for you, but you can go in for a a trial visit and just sit and uh, see if that person relates. And one thing you know, I would encourage you to do if you're looking, anyone looking for someone to see on a regular basis is um, I've, I really believe that if that person is in recovery or is, a clo- is closely associated with recovery themselves, they are going to understand you uniquely. I know a number of counselors that don't do addiction work at all. 
um, just because that's not their background. They don't have a personal um, story with it. And uh, so I find myself really working with a population of people that um, a lot of people don't want to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the book again is called After the Miracle, published by Morgan James, available at your local Barnes and Noble or or other uh, bookseller. If it's not in your local independent bookstore, you can ask for them to order it. Uh, Or in a pinch, you can buy it online at Amazon.com. What are the other ways that our listeners can reach you if they want to have a follow-up conversation, Dave? Yeah, I have a website, davidbhampton.com, and you can go there and see a little bit more about uh, what I'm doing and my story and um, all of that. And then, um, you know, certainly my email at dbh4asong at comcast.net, and uh, I'd be happy to communicate by email to anyone. Okay, awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, David. Uh, thank you again for, um, yeah, I'm just so grateful for your life, the way you've chosen to live out loud, the way uh, you, you know, you made a courageous decision to disclose your addiction story a few years ago. And that's been a blessing to countless people. And uh, I love what you're doing now. I love watching the way life is continuing to unfold for you. Uh, man, you've made a ton of changes in the last year, uh, not to run away from anything, but to run toward life. And it's inspiring to watch. I'm proud to be your friend. Well, likewise, Nate, thank you so much. And thank you for having me, Aaron. It's so good to talk to you as well. I owe you a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't remember whose turn it was. I think it's mine. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, All right. To have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Well, listeners, I th- uh, we, we will close out this section. We'll come back for a quick wrap-up wrap here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. That's fun having two of our uh, old friends who have both been on the show in one episode. Yeah, it really was. Really was. They're both uh, f- fun guys and trustworthy traveling companions for this stretch of the road, as we say in Samson. Yeah, and I'm so glad David's book's coming out because, I mean, you know, we spent that the whole retreat basically uh, unpacking his thoughts on this in Colorado a year and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. And so how, how cool that this resource will be available for everybody, even those that can't make it all the way to the mountains of Colorado. Right, 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 right. Okay. Well, uh, listeners, we would love to have your comments and questions. And also, uh, as I love, that was an inspired suggestion earlier in the show, Aaron, uh, the thought that somebody, might want to sponsor another man's journey into recovery. If you want to do that, or uh, for any reason at all, if you'd like to communicate with us, shoot us a line at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. We'll do our best to answer everybody. If not on the air, uh, uh, certainly by email. Well, brother, we got uh, we got another good show coming up next week. You'll be home by then, I hope. I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't no, I, I don't make promises. I've learned that. There you go. Yeah. But in the meantime, enjoy that precious time with your daughter. She's going to remember this for the rest of her life. Not just, you know, not just that car accident, but the week she went to the river with her dad. That's uh that's I'm so glad that you're doing that with her. Are you getting some quality time with Abby? Absolutely. We are working on a puzzle. And hanging out when we're not doing homeschool. Okay, fantastic. All right, well, give her a kiss from Uncle Nate. And uh, I guess until next week, uh, I'm Nate. And I'm Aaron. 
And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah.